Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Pattern, where we're at the intersection of machine learning and business. So for today's episode, Avesh interviewed Adam Spector, co-founder of a company called Liftigniter. Now Liftigniter is a machine learning startup that focuses on content personalization. So how you can think of that is when you go to Amazon and you see the recommended items, you know, those are personalized for you. Or when you go to YouTube and you see recommended videos, those are personalized to you. There's algorithms running in the background that get that personalization for you. But before we dive deep on Liftigniter, we want to dive a little bit into Adam because his background is fascinating. He was a lawyer by trade, which if you think about it is a pretty crazy jump, right? He went from lawyer to machine learning startup founder. And one of the things we like to do is get a sense of how, how, how people think about machine learning from as many perspectives as possible. And Avesh really jumped on that opportunity here. But as someone who comes from a law background, do you see any parallels between law and machine learning? Yes. Although at the same time, I think what the, the thing is actually lots of machine learning will probably end up being painful and, and to the legal profession and actually hurting the legal profession in some ways. Like frankly, machine learning could do to a lot of different professions that are out there. But a big parallel certainly is, I think, around pattern recognition and pattern matching, right? So lawyers are really good at understanding situations and distilling that that situation to kind of its critical core elements, and then figuring out how that situation has been applied in legal case law throughout the years, and then making a decision of how to attack it or move forward or those sort of legal situations. And that's kind of what you're taught in law school. But obviously, humans have trouble scaling to a really big size, which is the difference with machine learning. But you know, that's that lawyers are really good at, and that's when in many cases what machine learning is really good at is distilling something to its critical core elements. And then comparing that and contrasting it to what's happening today in the world. I mean, then figuring out kind of an intelligent path forward. That's really insightful that in law, it's all about precedent and what's happened before. And in machine learning, it's it's kind of the same thing. It's the, you know, trying to identify patterns in the historical data. Yep, exactly. Pretty cool analogy, right? So going back to Liftigniter and what they do, as I was saying earlier, they are a personalization engine. So customers will use them. They're an API that tells people, well, for this user, what content are they most likely going to prefer? Recommended videos, recommended products, things like that, which leads to you know higher click-through rates and better conversion rates down a sales funnel and better revenue, yada, yada, all good stuff. But if you ask yourself, well, this has been around for a while. People have been doing content personalization forever. Recommended videos, YouTube has had those you know, since the dawn. But what I want you to pay attention to when Adam starts talking about, or how he describes Liftigniter, is think about the coarseness at which things are done now and the granularity that our Liftigniter does with their engine. And it's this sort of thinking that is really powerful in machine learning, where you can transform a service and improve it by a magnitude because of the horsepower that machine learning gives in some of the more subtle pattern recognition. The company itself, right? So we're, we describe ourselves pretty simple. We're a machine learning personalization company. What that actually means in reality is that we are able to predict in real time what every single 
individual impression. So not just the user and, and your user, your listeners should make a real distinction between that. And what I mean by that is as they listen to this podcast, they are a single user who's listening to the podcast. However, they are a different impression at every moment in time. So as I'm saying that part about, as we just discussed legal parts of machine learning and how the, the different, the, the similarities are contrasting pieces, right? What we talked about there has changed your listeners to prepare them for this next part of the conversation. So they are actually different than they were a few seconds ago, right? We are always being impacted and changed by everything we're experiencing, right? The fact that we're here talking today is going to change what you want to do next in the future. Maybe profoundly, probably not, but hopefully, you never know. But it could change a lot, but it could change a little. And you just don't know. But we're always being affected or influenced by what we just experienced. In outside world, internally, what we're reading online, all those things. And so the key insight of Lift Igniter is that the action that you're taking on a given digital property, so a website or an app, will influence the next action that you're going to take. And if we can be smart and give a predictable, intelligent response to the action that you took, we can give you an intelligent response to keep you engaging and enjoying your experience on that site or app. I hope you now get a sense of what I was talking about when I meant the more subtle patterns that Lift Igniter is trying to extract and predict on. You can go off of broad preferences like I enjoy cat videos, but to really spin the needle, shouldn't it matter that you came from this other part of the site or what time of day it is? It's also pretty noteworthy to mention that Adam's two other co-founders, both technical, came from Google. And Google, the vast majority of their revenue comes from ads. So they've invested a lot, a ton of resources into ad personalization. And Adam's two other co-founders worked on those algorithms and those models. It's actually one of Lift Igniter's part of their plan to take all of that knowledge and make it more accessible to other businesses. So how do they do it? Yeah, totally. So for the customer, we'll call it a website just to make it easy right now. We also can do apps, but it's a little bit more complex on the integration side. But for websites, you add a JavaScript beacon. It's an asynchronous beacon. It collects all the key information that you have on the site. So basically it's collecting two, two key things actually via the beacon. Number one is all user actions, right? So literally where are users going, where they're clicking, how long they're spending in different parts of the site, Basically, all of these signals that a user gives off at every single moment in time. The other piece of data that we're collecting is around the content itself. So what characteristics does the content have? What's relevant in that context? How does it all fit together? So those two pieces of data we're collecting and pulling it in and then building up a a model, essentially a matrix, right? So a a massive, what I say to the non-technical people, imagine a massive Excel spreadsheet except it has 100 million columns and 100 million rows, and each one of those columns and rows is being crossed with the other in real time. It would break anyone's personal laptop, and we're doing that in real time to build our models up. But so that's sort of, literally, you add the JavaScript beacon, we now collect the data, we learn from, we collect the data about the content, and then over seven days we learn, users teach us the connections between every piece of content at every given moment in time, given every single user characteristic. I see. 
That's really fascinating. It's just a JavaScript beacon that delivers all this data. It is, and it's actually, I think, one of our big differentiators. We, we can be up and running with essentially five minutes of work time by our customer and nothing else after that, if they don't want. So it's very easy, simple and straightforward, except you get quantifiable and quantifiably better results back than anything you've had before. Okay, so during this week-long period of time, you see maybe a couple thousand users visit my site, they click on some articles on certain pages, so you get that data back, and what do you do? So now you have this matrix of which user clicked which item. What do you do with that, and how do you extrapolate that to a new user? Yeah, so basically what we end up doing is there is no hard and fast rule in our world of a given user, right? So that's one of the key things is we don't, I mean, at a high level, we certainly do that. You're an individual user and we're tracking what you do and, and you on the site. But the reality of the situation is we care about who you are at that moment in time. And how does that correspond and correlate to everybody else who's also on the site? So we're collecting all this information, pulling it in, and then building this model about you and saying, at this moment, you look like this other person who we've seen before. And before might have been 10 seconds ago. So we're saying, you look similar to this person we saw 10 seconds ago. In this person 10 seconds ago, let's say something happens out of the White House that's out of the blue, which happens a lot right now, right? <laughs> so something unexpected happens out of the White House. And you say, okay, now suddenly I would just, I want to read all about tech stuff. And now something has happened at the White House. So we need to see what sort of people who are reading this tech article about a new iPhone like to read something about what happened in the White House. I mean, that just happened immediately. This is breaking news, right? So we have to learn some users are going to that and people who aren't even on the tech article read about the White House thing, right? They maybe go just to this website, CNN or Fox News or whatever, just to read about what just happened in the White House. And then now our job is to figure out, well, people who just went to this political article, we think you don't care about more politics. Maybe you should read more tech stuff. Even though we've never seen you go to tech stuff, but we saw people who went from the tech stuff to the political article. And now you look similar. You know, we can make an, a guess, hopefully an intelligent one, that you went started on political stuff, you want to go to tech stuff because we learned from the person who started on tech and went to politics. How does this work when new content is added to a site where you don't have any of this historical data on how users interact with it? So, so you are um, making a I don't know, logical fallacy might be the wrong term for it, but the fallacy of believing that there is no historical data when in fact you have to remember the moment an item is posted, yes, for a millisecond, there is no historical data. But the moment it's posted, someone will go to it. The person who probably would go to it is the person who posted it. They might post it just to check, does this look right? Suddenly there actually is now historical data, right? It's not years worth of historical data. There are milliseconds of historical data. But to us, that's all that matters because we live in a millisecond world. So now there are milliseconds of historical data. And we're gonna see, how did the person who, the author of this article, they clicked on it, they made sure it got posted right. Maybe they went to go see some other things or they pushed it to the front page because that's what they wanted to do, or whatever it is. Now suddenly people are teaching us right away, in real time, we're learning, how does this new article fit into the flow of all other articles in a system, using breaking news from the White House, same sort of thing. That is, didn't exist, you know, an hour ago. There's some breaking news today around it. Like, didn't exist an hour ago. But the system that was picked up, this is relevant, this is interesting. These types of people wanna see it, and these other people still don't care. There are probably people who go to CNN or Fox News or wherever else who couldn't care less about what's happening, what's breaking news. So if CNN or Fox News was really smart about it, they wouldn't 
show it to everybody. They would only show it to the people who we know are going to care. And everyone else should keep seeing the other news and information that they care about. I see. So this, this follow-up question is a little down in the trenches of the machine learning, but so what happens for that first user, the first person clicking on, new, on a new article? Um, does Lefty Diary provide some sort of prior and how well that, I, that article is going to do? So there, obviously we don't know how well that article is going to do if it's brand new. And for a brand new user, we should talk about them too, but for the brand new article, we won't have a prior obviously of what articles are completely relevant in that case. So instead what we'll do at some point, you just default to a basic, like these are the top articles that we think are relevant right now. But even once again, right off the bat, if there is any sort of signal about that content, and so let me put it this way, there might be signals around the author of that content, right? So all these signals, oh, we know there's the author of the content. Well, now we're gonna say, okay, well maybe you like reading stuff from this author, which actually is probably true because the author probably just posted it. So they probably like seeing their own stuff because everyone sort of likes seeing their own stuff. So there's already stuff right off the bat that we're gonna be able to pull in pretty quickly to figure out what's relevant to that user, hopefully. So one of the things that Adam mentioned earlier on was the use of a JavaScript beacon. Uh, this is the beacon that a customer can just drop into their site. It takes about five minutes of engineering time and the customer's like up and ready to go integrated with LiftIgniter. I think it's important to call something like this out because you have to remember in a, in a, with a machine learning product, it can take a while before the product is actually ready to show results to a customer. For LiftIgniter's case, it takes about a week before the product starts recommending about as well as the current approach. And so any reduction in friction on that initial integration can be a game changer. And it's kind of the reason that LiftIgniter's first success story with a company called Pando Daily worked out so well. And how did you prove to Pando Daily that this worked? The same way we do with our customers today. We essentially said, turn it on and test it. We will, and this also goes to our historical roots. Most people will sell you the world in the moon, and then they will tell you it's going to take six months to integrate, and hopefully you'll get 20% improvement. But you don't really know until the, the integration's done. And of course, at that point, you've spent thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this, and you feel like you have to just keep going on this train because you're stuck. As a small startup, we didn't have that luxury. No one's going to give us six months to do a massive integration to get things going. So we had to do it quickly, and we had to prove it to them really fast as well. So we did. It was by necessity. We built a product that worked, that gave them results, and we quantified it with an A-B test us versus what they were doing currently at that moment to recommend other content. That is what we did. And the proof is in the pudding. They could track it using Google Analytics. They don't even have to trust us. Just look at the numbers. And there's no massaging the data. The data speaks for itself. So in these, in these A-B tests, I guess what you're going after is, is clicks, which is it lifting that or the baseline model that causes users to click on more content? That, well, that is, so it depends on the customer. Today we do clicks, engagement, conversion, shareability. There's lots of KPIs that you can have. But what you're saying is totally right. The it, It's an A-B test, baseline of what they're doing versus what LiftUniter is doing. Identical look and feel, nothing looks different. We don't make any other changes. It's a straight A-B test of what they're doing at that moment. And we will prove out that we are a minimum of 20% improvement and we will average over 80%. Wow, 
That is definitely the power of machine learning and a testament to the amazing work that's going on at Lift Igniter. The next part of this interview is probably one of my favorites, just because with the advent of any new technology like machine learning, it's really important that we give adequate considerations to how this technology is going to affect society at large. And Avesh brought up a fascinating social issue that is at the corner of content personalization and machine learning. And this conversation makes me think back to the, the conversation that was happening, I guess, around 2012, when we were talking about the filter bubble mm. uh, and about users only seeing content that they're likely to be interested in and in turn that reaffirms their beliefs. How do you, how do you deal with this problem? How do you add diversity to, to the content that you're serving users? Yep. So it's a fantastic question and one we think about a lot because I, don't, I, I, I would say for society as a personal level, it's not necessarily a good thing that filter bubbles exist. However, there's a business practical reason why filter bubbles do exist, which is that people enjoy being in a filter bubble of sorts. Why do people who want to work in tech move to the San Francisco Bay Area? It's because you want to be part of people who work in tech. You want to be part of the entrepreneurial ecosystem that's out here because it makes you feel good about your decision to be totally crazy and go start a startup, which is an insane idea. That's crazy, but you want to be around people who are supportive and recognize that decision. So we, we gravitate towards that and we enjoy as humans, we enjoy kind of our tribe and people who make us feel comfortable with what we think and what we believe to be true. In our businesses and our customers, their job is themselves. They can decide how how much of a bubble do we want to let people get into or how diverse do we want our, our experiences to be. And that's their own choices as businesses and go both ways. As a company in technology, it's actually relatively easy for us to essentially push up or down the, let's call it diversity slider of what you see. Do you want more diverse content? Um, it might reduce the filter bubble and it might also reduce though the user's enjoyment on the site. But as a business, you can decide Part of who we are as a business is we want people to recognize that we support a diverse amount of content from a wide variety of views and opinions. That's a legitimate, wonderful business decision. And from a technology perspective, it's very easy for us to enable that diversity, but it might have other business consequences as well. I see. So it really is up to your customer then to adjust this sliding bar of how diverse they want their content to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think our listeners would love to hear about any other lessons learned that you had at YC that led you to your first successful customer. Is there anything else you think would be generally applicable? You know, in some ways, I would say probably some of the big ones that YC talks about a lot, and I think that's still accurate in a lot of cases, is it, it hurt us, but it also worked out, is do things that don't scale. I mean, you know, in the end, your, your job in YC is to figure out what you know, what customer, like, what does a customer want? And it, do you have a product that they're willing to spend money on? And in that sense, we learned that lesson. I mean, we knew that anyways. And we learned that lesson in YC. People were, the big guys were chomping at the bit to get this. The problem, of course, on the flip side was it probably was a little too aggressive and we probably bit off a little bit more than we could chew. But luckily, in a sense, we had raised, and this is another maybe lesson for startups, we, we, we were able to raise enough money to give us a long enough runway to sort of reset the company and say, hey, let's, 
Let's be a little bit more, we don't need to have great stats to go raise money. Let's reset things and work towards a successful, like a really successful product that can scale. It will be slower, but that's okay. The main counter argument I hear to that for software as a service companies is that, um, or actually sorry, for any business to business company, is that once you have one large business on board, the rest come easily. Do you think that's true? And is that a reason to prioritize large companies? I don't think it's true. It may be true for some businesses, but I think in a lot of businesses, there's actually a actually big fear of having one large business on one large customer, which is you basically become a consultant shop for that customer. They dictate what goes into your product. They dictate the needs that they have. And because they're your only customer, you end up having to serve their whims at every single moment in time. Instead of building something that's good for your, your target customers, you build something that's good just for that customer and you end up having something you can't resell and you can't scale to anybody else. So getting one big customer is maybe helpful for fundraising and obviously can provide some revenue. It can be a major detriment in the long-term prospects of the company. And so there you have it. Some advice from an alumni of Y Combinator and how machine learning is changing the game in content personalization. And with that, this is the end of this episode of Pattern. As always, please reach out with any questions, uh, feedback. If you need help on anything, uh, our email is hello at patternml.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks.